Believe it or not. Strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. Unbelievable? Believe it. Ripley's Believe It or Not. Incomparable, inimitable, illimitable, inestimable, introducer of immeasurable, incalculable, incredible impossibilities. Welcome to Ripley's Believe It or Not cast, the podcast that brings you deep into the strange, the bizarre, and the unusual. I'm Ryan Clark. And I'm Brent Donaldson. And Ryan, I've got to tell you, I am super excited about this episode. Why is that, Brent? Well, it's travel season, right? And so we are going to take our listeners to some crazy, crazy places. We're going around the world from Brazil's Snake Island to the Vatican Archives on a search for places we can't visit. Because there are some places around the world that you just can't go, right? It doesn't matter how much money we have, how much fame we have, or how ridiculously good-looking we might be. We just can't go there. Take Fort Knox, for instance. We can't go in the vault. Some people, well, wait, some people can. The Treasury Secretary We can't, though. But he can take some good pictures down there. Then, like you said, there are some islands and jungles that are just inhospitable. Still, other places are off limits because of their religious reasons. But what if we could go there, Brent? That's the question Mm -hmm. that we're posing to world trekkers like Ben Buckner, a friend of ours from Lonely Planet, who says there are several places that he'd like to visit if he only could, including Area 51. Yep. And speaking of Area 51, let's now meet Peter Merlin. Peter is an aerospace historian and one of the world's foremost experts on Area 51, which is the mysterious desert military site that for decades has been one of the planet's most productive rumor mills, really, regarding alien beings and UFOs. So let's first listen to Peter describe one of Area 51's secretive programs that took place in the late 50s and 1960s, which was the backdrop of a pop culture obsessed with outer space and alien existence. The secrecy surrounding Oxcart was that it was a completely unacknowledged black program. Only the people involved in it were supposed to uh, have any knowledge of it. And so it was developed in secrecy, it was tested in secrecy. The pilots were recruited out of the Air Force and essentially told, uh, we need you for a project you you can accept or not, but you have to to say right now uh, or you'll, you know, we we won't, you'll never, this conversation never took place. And those who did accept then had to go through some pretty extensive testing uh, even before being fully accepted and briefed into the program. Once they were, uh, they, they sort of did what they called sheep dipping, which is the the Air Force pilots had to resign their military commissions and essentially become civilians working for the CIA. And they were given pseudonyms by which they were known uh, during the program. And these names were taken off of uh, tombstones in cemeteries in Europe. Wait, what? Mm -hmm. This story is so fantastic. It sounds like it comes straight out of a spy novel. It does. Basically, you have these military guys who are being recruited into this secret program. They have their identities completely erased. And then they assume this new uh, made-up identity from some dead person from Europe. Well, not it's not made up. They're, they're na- their names are taken off of obscure gravestones, yeah, somewhere in Europe, which, I don't know, it just made me wonder, like, did any of these CIA operatives 
father any kids with their sort of gravely sourced names like um uh if Jacques Dubois had a good R and R weekend, does the Dubois lineage still live today? <laughs> Wait a minute, sir. Are, are you telling me that there are no kind of natural Jacques Dubois in Nevada? Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, there might be. They're like great grandpa. Fair enough. <laughs> so, um, at any rate, it's easy to see why the area has the mystique it does. Right, Area Fifty One is a clandestine training and test mission site for the military that used to be run by the CIA. So we just heard about Project Oxcart. There was also Project Aquatone that helped develop and test the U two spy plane, which conducted several missions during the Cold War, and a lot of new technology went into that aircraft, which is still in use today, um, including the anti blood boiling pressure suits. Have you heard of these? I'm sorry, what? So if you're flying above 50,000 feet and the U-2 flies at 70,000 feet, you're in a part of the strat- stratosphere where if you were just exposed to it, your blood would begin to boil. Whoa. Cool. So there was also Project Rainbow, which was an attempt to reduce the radar signature of the U-2, and then there was Project Oxcart, which we just uh, heard about. What, um, what I want you to think about, though, Ryan, is... All of this is going on in the middle of the desert against an American popular culture culture obsessed with all things extraterrestrial, especially in the 50s and 60s. Let's go back to 1938 real quick. That's Orson Welles when he broadcasts War of the Worlds over the radio, causes a panic, people thinking about Martians coming down with death rays and killing everybody. Now let's go to June 1947. Pilot Kenneth Arnold allegedly sees a bunch of UFOs over Mount Rainier, Washington. Now let's go a month later where something crazy um, crashes in a farmer's field in Roswell, New Mexico. Flash forward to 1951, we've got the movie The Day the Earth Stood Still. It starts to permeate American culture. This is what Americans were thinking about, UFOs, aliens, they were seeing more sightings, and by 1969, there was an institution created to investigate these things. It was the Mutual UFO Network. Mm -hmm. So have you ever heard of Project Stardust? I have not. Let's check this out. Well, during the 1950s and 60s at Area 51, you had aircraft being developed that could fly at extremely high altitudes, and in the case of the A-12, at extremely high speeds. Uh, I've heard a CIA historian claim that during that time, you know, more than half of all UFO reports were probably U-2 and A-12 sightings. I don't know if that's true. That sounds a little excessive to me. But, on the other hand, these aircraft flew at more than twice the altitude of commercial airliners and military planes of the time. Uh, The spy planes initially flew unpainted in natural metal, and when seen from below in the early evening darkness, their metal skin would shine in the rays of the sun coming up from below the horizon, so they would have looked like very bright star-like objects racing across the sky, and that easily could have caused UFO sightings. And certainly, uh, some of the airplanes are quite exotic-looking just in terms of their shapes. They're, there was a uh, there was an electrician working at Area 51 uh, in the early 60s who was not cleared into the program, so, you know, Usually when the airplane was outside, he had to be uh, quarantined in a a windowless building. 
But he caught sight of one of these A-12s from a distance of about half a mile, and it was such a strange-looking shape that he thought it was a, a flying saucer. Certainly there have been a lot of strange sightings of things, but from, from the beginning, when the Air Force was studying UFOs, they weren't thinking of them in terms of anything extraterrestrial. UFOs were considered primarily to be possible uh, foreign aircraft of some kind, you know, maybe Soviet. The idea of UFOs as being anything extraterrestrial, you know, sort of filtered in more from popular culture than anything else. But it wasn't really the original uh, in intent of those studies. And, you know, then you have a whole other subculture of folks who you know, think that flying saucers have crashed on Earth and that they're extraterrestrial. You know, but if you go back and look into the documents uh, over the years, there were uh, things like Project Stardust, which was, you know, uh, it would have been recovering anything that, you know, fell from space. And there were a lot of UFO reports during this time, 1950s, 60s, and the people who were having the official meetings on Project Stardust were talking about UFOs and saying, you know, gee, we, we hear about these things, you know, possibly crashing. It would be awfully nice if we could ever get any pieces of it. And, you know, so that to me says they, they didn't have any pieces of, of UFOs. So, you know, uh, the stories about the government secretly collecting this stuff, I, I don't think that's probably true. So the government has collected stuff in secret, but Peter's just saying that that stuff was not remnants of UFO aircraft. Um, on that note, even on our website, Ripley's.com, you can read about the time that the United States acquired a Russian satellite in 1959 and reverse engineered it. Believe it or not. So the secrecy of the early stealth programs at Area 51 has been compared to the secrecy surrounding the Manhattan Project, which was also, for a while, an unacknowledged black program. So these Area 51 projects were meant to be known only by the people who were involved with them. The government flat out did not acknowledge their existence. Yeah, but there were rumors leaking out. And even President Jimmy Carter said there was work being done on a stealthy type of aircraft. So with all this secrecy, you'd think Area 51 would be surrounded by fences and barbed wire. Mm-hmm. Or maybe a moat. Well, oddly enough, uh, Area 51 is pretty much out in the open. And much of the area surrounding there simply has no fencing or walls or anything of the kind as far as a physical barrier. Uh, if you were to drive out there, taking one of the roads that uh, enters the base area, you would first come across some warning signs, which are pretty specific about saying this is a restricted area, uh, you know, do not enter. For a while, it even had the, uh, the words use of deadly force authorized. But there's no gate and no fence. And so some people have made the mistake of driving past those signs. And a little while later, all of a sudden, you come to a, a guard shack and you're under arrest because by that point, you're well inside the boundary. There are cameras on the perimeter to uh, look for people who might might be heading in there. And there are a lot of sensors just out on the, the landscape to detect vehicles. So, you know, really, uh, the Air Force knows you're coming if you're headed out there. And 
they're they're pretty good about keeping people uh, keeping people out, even though there aren't any actual fences. You know, there are tons of videos out there of people trying to visit Area 51, and it seems like the the lesson that they always learn is that basically just don't try it. Yeah, they kind of all have the same ending, right? But it's the mystery of Area 51 that draws people, and that mystery is heightened over and over and over again at Area 51 by its secrecy. Clearly, Peter Merlin is a solidly empirical evidence kind of guy. He doesn't buy into the alien-slash-UFO theories about Area 51, but he does visit crash sites of exotic aircraft, some of which were developed at Area 51, and at one point that curiosity of Peter's led him to Roswell, New Mexico. Well, the whole Roswell incident, and I use the term incident rather lightly, um, that whole thing, you know, it, it came and went in a very short space of time. It was quite well summarized in the Las Vegas Review Journal at the time. You had a, a rancher, uh, Mac Brazel, uh, out near Corona, New Mexico, which is you know, some distance from Roswell. And he found some debris out in the, the sheep pasture, which looked like tin foil and sticks and rubber. And he'd heard stories about, you know, these supposed flying discs, and he didn't know what this stuff was. So eventually, when he had some time, he got into town, because it was quite a long drive to Roswell, and told the sheriff, uh, hey, I found some stuff on the ranch, and I don't know what it is. You know, Maybe it's one of these flying discs. Some Air, Air Force guys went out to check it out, and you know, subsequently they identified it as being uh, radar targets from a type of balloon system. You know, it, you know, it's a little bit disingenuous to say weather balloon, because that really wasn't what it was. At the time, there were some special balloons being tested uh, out of uh, that area, which would have been used as spy systems to to spy on the Soviet Union and elsewhere, and some of these would eventually, you know, come down the desert, and quite possibly, this would have been bits of balloon and, and radar targets. And really, once that was identified, that was the end of the story. And it wasn't until quite a few years later that someone came along and started saying that maybe it's something extraterrestrial. And, you know, the longer time goes by, the more people's memory seems to uh, improve, which uh, is very counterintuitive. And people start remembering all sorts of bizarre alien stuff that was never part of the original story. And, you know, you go from your original small group of witnesses to now dozens and dozens of witnesses who probably had nothing to do with it. You know, a lot of people have deconstructed the Roswell myth at great length. Even the Air Force went to efforts to do a, an official investigation on that. And uh, I'm pretty satisfied that it was part of the, the Project Mogul balloon system. Okay. Peter visits crash sites like this and crash sites for these super secret, unacknowledged black programs. He says that what happens after a crash of one of these aircraft is virtually identical to any UFO crash retrieval story you've ever heard. So the thing falls out of the sky, the government shows up and takes control of the crash site for as long as they need to, they make cleanup their top priority, they tell any witnesses, forget what you saw, that kind of thing, and then they leave, right? It's basically the scene out of E.T. 
Yeah, or or, Men or, in Black. or whatever movie you yeah. want to bring out. Yeah, uh, right. And and I guess for me, I think you can talk to ten thousand people, and you'll get ten thousand opinions on what they think happened in Roswell, New Mexico. I'm one of those people. I think I know what happened at Roswell too. It's not very far from what Peter talks about. Um, a little bit of background for me. This whole alien mythology reminds me of when I was a kid, and it was the thing that scared me most out of anything in the world. I didn't care about monsters. I didn't care about zombies. I didn't care about my parents. I cared about getting abducted by aliens out of my bed in the middle of the night. Sad, though. You didn't care about your parents? Well, not in that way, but... But you know what I mean? Like, that was the thing that, you know, I saw Unsolved Mysteries or, you know, um, Whitley Strieber's book, Communion, with the big alien head on mm-hmm. the cover. Yeah. You know, it just kind of, like, looks out at you from every bookstore. And I just remember when I was a kid, I was so freaked out by that. Um, but it led into a real curiosity and a real interest in that mythology and that topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that I thought, you know, was interesting is that Peter really didn't talk about The one thing that I think kind of stands out about this story is that why did everyone think a UFO crashed in that farm? Like newspapers wrote stories about that. And we see the newspaper covers still from today. Why did that story get out there? I just wanted to know. Now, I don't particularly believe that a UFO crashed that day. That's not my thing. But what I think is interesting is how that story got out. What's up with that? Well, uh, uh, um, they weren't clicks back then, but selling copies, right? Like it makes good copies. So in, so in, and I guess that's, that's, that's an option that you can believe that it was just straight up uh, a made up story. Who made it up? Peter. I don't think Peter made it up, but I do think that it's a real possibility that the government made it up. Okay. I think you're getting a little bit too excited about this. I think I think that we should take take a little trip. Let's take a little trip with our friend Ben Buckner from Lonely Planet. What do you say? I'm Ben Buckner. I am Lonely Planet's destination editor for Canada and the Western United States. So basically, Ben's in charge of writing all of Lonely Planet's travel articles for that region of the world. And we decided to talk to him because, well, you know, it's travel season. And instead of going around the world to find cool, believe it or not, places to tell you about, we thought maybe it'd be fun to take you to those places you can't visit. So we asked Ben, out of all of the off-limits places in the world, the places that either no one is allowed to visit or places that would be too dangerous or impossible to reach, where would he want to go first? So Ryan, grab your passport, your library card, and your rosary. We're going to Vatican City. One place that has always jumped to my mind when I think of, you know, a list of like this of places where uh, you can't visit in the world is the Vatican archives in Vatican City. 
it's um, it's just a place for lack of a better word, it's a library, but it's a it's a library unlike any other in the world. It's it's like 53 miles of shelves of artifacts and pieces of paper and records going throughout human history, things that you can only find in one place, uh, just unique artifacts such as the marriage annulment request for Henry VIII or the records of Galileo Galilei's trial for heresy. Um, these are just one-of-a-kind artifacts that can only be found at the Vatican Archives. But uh, it's not anybody can go there. Not everybody can go there. It is um, it's very exclusive, the number of people who are allowed to go. And from what I understand, you have to be uh, a world-renowned scholar who is looking for something very specific. And yeah, he's right about that, by the way. Um, apparently, only accredited scholars can enter the Vatican City Archives, and even if you gain access, you can request only three folders a day, which might end up being in a language you can't read. Uh, yeah, this place is so vast. Uh, there's stuff in there that we don't even know about. Uh, one of the things that, that I found out was that there are letters from both Abraham Lincoln and Jefferson Davis, uh, neither of whom were Catholic, by the way, uh, who wrote letters in 1863 to Pope Pius IX, uh, asking him basically to support their side during the Civil War. Uh, that, to me, is just fascinating. Yep, it is. But, hey, man, we got to go. So can you grab your sunscreen, your two-piece, and your girl from Ipanema? We're going to Brazil. Oh, by the way, where are we going in Brazil? Are we going to Rio or Sao Paulo? Or are we going to see Christ the Redeemer? No, 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 no. We're going to Snake Island. And already I'm sure you're like, yep, not going there, right? <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's just a, a very small island, not very far off the coast of Brazil, but it is completely inundated with about 4,000 uh, vipers, literal snakes, that are some of the most venomous in the world. Uh, the, the problem with this island is that there's no mammals. So the the venom in these vipers has to be so strong that they can hit a bird up in a tree and kill that bird instantly. So this this whole uh, the, the whole island is swarming with these snakes that are just the the venom is so strong that will kill a human in a heartbeat. My favorite part of the story is that the locals say that the snakes were put there by pirates in order to guard their treasure. So I don't know if you want to brave it, but out there somewhere there might be some treasure. Wait, what locals? The locals off the coast of Brazil, I think. Well, that's as local as you can get, I guess. Mm -hmm. I want to talk to them. So if you go on our website, rareplease.com, you can read about a zoo in the Philippines that offers massages using four pythons that weigh up to 440 pounds. Believe it or not. So apparently there are adrenaline junkies out there who go to this place and lie down and have up to four of these 440 pound pythons slither over them and get a massage. Is this where you think we should hear Sam Jackson's voice telling us something about too many snakes being on this bleepity bleeping story? Ryan, 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 there's no time for that. Grab your chapstick, your tauntaun parka, your moon boots, and your ski goggles. We're heading to New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. 
So another one that uh, that comes to mind for me is Mount Washington in New Hampshire. Uh, this is, uh, you know, it's just a mountain in New Hampshire, but it, the wind chills get so low in the uh, in the winter, and it gets so cold there uh, that it's just one of the most inhospitable places in the world. Um, the in 1934, the record wind speed was set there 231 mile an hour winds can you even imagine and uh and with wind with wind speeds like that you get wind chills down under under negative 100 degrees fahrenheit so it's uh it's just one of those very inhospitable places uh that would just be almost impossible to uh to go to you know it's tough sledding up there ryan but i hear there's a great ski bunny lodge yep but the beer is always cold. So cold. All right, you ready? Let's go. Grab your four cell phones, your hard drive, your thumb drive infected with malware, your hidden camera detector, your nine USB drives, your five SIM cards, and $8,000 in Chinese currency. We're headed to China's Spy Museum. Cool. Do we have tickets? No, we're definitely not allowed in. So the Jiangsu National Security Education Museum, it's just a, uh, a museum for spycraft. Uh, but you know, imagine imagine uh, the CIA opening a museum and letting anyone in the world come and visit. Uh, it wouldn't happen, right? So uh, uh, the chances of, of being able to, for any Westerner to go over there and learn China's state secrets is, um, is are slim and none. It's got every uh, every spy gizmo and gadget and uh, uh, exhibits on tactics and history of uh, of espionage and things like that that um, that would be fascinating to anyone to be able to go and check it out. But uh, it's closed off to Westerners. Okay, so that's pretty cool, right? But um, unfortunately, we are just two pasty white guys and there's no way they're going to let us in. <laughs> yeah, we're not getting in. Uh, yeah, this place opened in 2009 and the Associated Press told us that uh, there's a couple of exhibits there where like guns are disguised as lipsticks or um, tobacco pipes or fountain pens, things like that. There's um, hollowed out coins that people would use to hide maps or even uh, I think there was a pocket calculator that was an audio recorder. Um, very, very cool stuff. But uh, later on in this Associated Press story, it said, quote, although people who look like Westerners are turned away immediately at the door, those who look clean and have Chinese features are usually allowed to enter without further checks. So uh, we're still not getting in. Okay, well, we might as well leave. Do you have one more trip in you? I think so. All right, grab your hazmat suit, your Geiger counter, and your potassium iodide packs. We're going to Chernobyl. You know that was the the site of a of a pretty awful disaster, nu- a nuclear disaster, where the reactor melted down and uh, just poured radiation all over the uh, all over the area. I think that that's um, 
it's going to be pretty inhospitable for the next uh, many thousands of years. It's on the it's on the border of Ukraine and Belarus, but uh, but and and you can get in there from from what I understand. You can uh, they they do host tours and things like that. And some of the residents, despite many warnings, are um, are being asked not to come back, but they're coming back anyway. But uh, the, the levels of rate of radiation there are still extremely high. So uh, if you for anyone who works in that zone, from what I understand, it's like 15 days in, 15 days out. Uh, you, you really shouldn't be spending a lot of time in, in the Chernobyl exclusion zone. Oh, man, let's get out of here. I don't even like standing next to the microwave when it's running. Ben, other than Ripley's, where can our listeners go to find out more info about some of the places we've talked about? That's a great question. Um, you can always uh, check us out on LonelyPlanet.com uh, and check in our shop. Uh, there's a couple of, of cool books for kids that I wanted to highlight. Uh, there's The World's Strangest Places and The Daredevil's Guide to Dangerous Places. Both of these books, I think, would be really good uh, for coming up with the, some extra some extra places that you maybe shouldn't maybe shouldn't travel to. Cool dangerous places for kids our thanks once again to ben and to peter for bringing the knowledge it seems like there's always going to be a locked door or a forbidden area that we're not supposed to visit or open but that doesn't mean we'll stop trying i know they feel the same way brent mm-hmm. now we've come to the part of the podcast where we discuss misconceptions about some aspect of the topics we've covered we call it the or not portion of the show because this is where we put modern day facts to the test because you can't always believe what you hear. This week we've discussed places that no matter how rich or how well connected or how brave you are, you just can't visit. And one of those places has been the subject of countless television shows, newspaper articles, movies, and conspiracy theories. Area 51 has captured our imaginations for 75 years because we just don't know what's being created there. But we're also fascinated by the mythology that the place is so secret the U.S. government would not even acknowledge it, or so the story goes. According to Peter Merlin, one of the big myths is that it has the world's longest runway. Actually, that's not true. The concrete airstrip built for the Project Oxcart was just over 8,600 feet long with a 6,000-foot asphalt overrun that was meant for emergency use only. That airstrip is no longer even used. The current runway is around 14,000 feet long, which is about 2,000 feet shorter than the runway at Denver International Airport. There have also been rumors of secret underground facilities at Area 51, but Peter says that there's no documentation or testimony from verified former Area 51 personnel to support any of this. He says that when you look at the satellite pictures, pretty much what you see is what you get. But Peter says the biggest secret about Area 51 is that it was never secret. As he's documented on his website, dreamlandresort.com, the, quote, base that doesn't exist has always been public knowledge. Construction of the airfield at Groom Lake, Nevada, was announced by the government, and its existence has been repeatedly acknowledged by official sources. It's appeared on numerous unclassified maps produced by government agencies and contractors, test site insiders, government officials, military personnel, and the general public have, however, unknowingly conspired to perpetuate the myth that the existence of the base is a closely guarded secret, Peter said. Well, there you have it. The Notcast makes you reevaluate what you thought you knew about Area 51. 
and about the places you'll never be able to go. As a species, we'll always want to explore, to discover, and go further than ever before. Of course, here at Ripley's, that's just what we do every week. And we'll continue to bring you the stories from those far-off places and lands, even when the sign on the door says no entry. Because telling stories is what we do, believe them or not. Ripley's Believe It or Not cast is produced by myself, Ryan Clark, and Sabrina Seek. Our executive producer is Amanda Joyner. Our intro theme music is by Colton Cruz, and our ending theme song is by the band Wussy. Wussy. Check them out. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and tell your friends or leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. If you have comments, questions, or ideas, email us at notcast at ripleys.com or tweet at ripleys. Be sure to catch the Notcast next week when we take you to church to talk to one of the world's most experienced exorcists. We'll walk you through what that process is really like and investigate why priests are receiving more requests for exorcisms than ever before. That's all next time on Ripley's Believe It or Notcast. I actually visited the, the ranch myself one time. I happened to be passing through that area. And I drove onto the ranch and went to the foreman's house and knocked on the door. And this nice woman answered, and I looked at her kind of sheepishly, and my buddy and I said, uh, yeah, we'd kind of like to wander around on part of your property. And she said, oh, you're looking for the flying saucer. And I said, uh, yeah, yeah, that's it. And so she let us do that. And, uh, you know, I'd heard all these stories about this uh, supposedly you know, magical kind of foil stuff. Peering down into a rock crevice, I saw a metallic foil. And I thought, I found it but it turned out to be a TV dinner tray. Yeah.